0: Welcome to Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community, along with visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, and other notable figures to the WFIU audience. I'm Yael Cassander, and our guest today is Osamu James Nakagawa, the internationally exhibiting photographer and professor at Indiana University Bloomington. Nakagawa has been honored with a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Higa Shikawa New Photographer Award in Japan. Nakagawa's photographs belong to the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Photography, the George Eastman House, and many other museums and private collections. Welcome, James. Hi. Your, your medium of choice, photography, often suffers a fate that other mediums do not. That is that even in 2016, a photograph is taken literally as a representation of something out there, something that's observed. But you use photography in a different way. Sometimes you stage scenes. More often you manipulate images or combine them. But before we get into the content and your techniques, let's talk about why you use this medium to express yourself? What can you do in photography that you can't do in any other medium?
1: Well, that's a very difficult question from the top, but uh, fundamental photography is uh, recording reality, but I'm interested in things you cannot see. So something internal, how can I visualize things are internal within myself to use the reality and change the reality and how to convey that.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the, uh, the categories that were established in that 1978 show at the Museum of Modern Art, Mirrors, mirrors and, and Windows. And, mirrors. and so the idea that photography can provide a view of the world or of the soul or the interior. And you've used photography to provide both views, and it seems like you've, in fact, blended personal history and political commentary, right. or your, an examination of your interior and a commentary on the world. I think uh, that this combination or this conflation really manifests itself most brilliantly in the photographs of the Okinawan caves, right. which is a literal interior that is closed off to the outside world. So let's, let's talk about those caves. What led you to the caves and what are you exploring there?
1: I think um, it's not that I had an idea, okay, let's go into the cave. I mean, I had a previous uh, body of work with taking photograph of this cliff and, and known as uh, during the World War II, you know, a lot of people jumped off from, they were driven to jump off from uh, these cliffs. In Okinawa. Uh, Okinawa, World War II, the, the U.S. invasion of Okinawan Island. So, Okinawan people were sandwiched between Japanese military and American military, and they didn't know where to go, so some of them decided to. Well, they, were, they were probably educated by Japanese military not to be captured and jump off a cliff, or they even distributed uh, hand grenades to each family to blow themselves up. So, that was the situation. It's this crazy situation at that time. So I wanted to visualize the surface of cliff. I wanted to see it. So I, I found a way to go down and took a photograph of this cliff to see the residue of violence. And it was. I saw it. Because certain things, if you look at it closely, obviously there's a bomb mark on this coral limestone. And When you look at it closely, it looks like faces and... I think it's 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 a landscape can be witness to the history. So I wanted to try to depict that.
0: And in those cliff or banta photographs, you were obviously exploring a a very tragic chapter in Japanese, Okinawan, and American history. Mm -hmm. What were you simultaneously exploring within yourself?
1: Within myself, I think I'm trying to have a conversation with myself being Japanese-American. I grew up in Japan. I was born in the United States, but I grew up in Japan. And then I moved back to the United States and then went back to Japan. And then I don't fit in. So when I went to Okinawa, I felt the sense of similar... Not belonging to anywhere Okinawan, yes they affiliated with Japanese, but not quite Japanese. They have their own identity. So I kind of sensed this ambivalent uh, in-between mm-hmm. identity by Okinawan people, mm-hmm. and then I felt compelled to visualize from my in-between. Japanese American, and now Okinawan. Being Okinawan is different because I'm not Okinawan, but my wife is Okinawan, and my daughter's Okinawan Japanese American. So trying to to research, and now I have uh, my wife's family, so I get to talk to you know family members about what happened in World War II, what's the situation now, and also, Okinawan artists embraced me and educated me too after I had an exhibition at the Sakima Museum in Okinawa. Hmm. And that led to Gama. Going into the cave was taboo for Okinawan people.
0: Let's talk about the caves and, and historically uh, what in fact happened there.
1: Before horrible stuff happened in World War II, the cave in Okinawan is called Gamma. Gama was sacred place for Okinawan people and existed for thousands of thousands of years. And shaman, Okinawan shaman, goes in to pilgrimage every, every year to pray for the spirit. So the reason why I wanted to go into the cave was while I was working on the Bunta series, Japanese Ministry of Education, trying to take off the fact of suicide or trying to soften the word of this mass suicide in Okinawa was maybe voluntary done instead of driven by military, Japanese military. So they wanted to take that out from the high school textbook. 100,000 people got together and rallied against. Japanese and American government made a deal in 1970s before they returned Okinawa back to Japan to have military presence in in Okinawa. Seventy percent of the military presence in Japan, entire Japan, is all packed in Okinawa and it's still that way too. So Okinawans feel betrayed, I think, you know, by the yeah. Japanese government. And yeah. still is. Yeah. So so hundred thousand people got together and rally against this change. So I was working on the banta when that happened. So my realization is maybe I when I finish this, I really need to go into the cave and see all the site of the mass suicide in a cave.
0: So in the caves, they had not only been very sacred spaces for many thousands of years, but then during the Watered. occupation, during the Battle of Okinawa, people... Became, hid- became yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: hidden. I mean, the civilians were already evacuated into the cave, and they were living there, and it was 90 days of battle, right? And they went in to evacuate, but then military, Japanese military came in, and they kicked them out. But meanwhile, U.S. is bombing these islands, and Ernie Pyle made a comment about, you know, the Typhoon of Steel, yeah. You know? So it was crazy, so they didn't know where to go. But during the, uh, this time, military, Japanese uh, army con- convinced these people in, in the cave to commit suicide too, with hand grenade or, it's just a horrible. Entire family, I mean, village got wiped out too, you know. You know, so, it was became a crazy, crazy dark
0: place, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And then, um, after that terrible chapter, were the caves closed off? In Ooh. after after the battle was over, and so many people had suicided in the caves. No, it was it was
1: it was open. I mean, some of them it's very hard to find. It's in 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 a jungle, and small opening. But when you go in, it opens up. But, uh,
0: and they're accessible normally or no?
1: Some of them, they are open up for peace education. So, you know, Japanese uh, elementary school or junior high or high school, they have a field trip in Okinawa, and they go into the cave to talk to the survivor. So they, they've been doing that to educate mm-hmm. young people.
0: mm mm-hmm. In many what of happened? the caves that you photographed, we can still see bones. Mm, and some of them, yes. Pieces of pottery. Yeah. As um, you can see, on my. Those okay. things all remained there for how many 70 Seven years? years?
1: I think most of them cleaned up uh, because when I see the photograph from the right after the World War II, you see skulls everywhere, like amounts of bones and but uh, now mostly cleaned up but yeah when I went into these caves I found some bones and interesting about taking photographs in the total darkness you find out bones later when I'm working on the file right? you know digital file so
0: talk about the process of (laughs) illuminating the caves and how you managed to get an image in a dark place. Well, my methodology clearly changed
1: from taking photograph of the tall uh, cliff. Uh, cliff was a different way to stitch the image to make hyper, hyper real detail photograph.
0: So in other words, you are showing us views of the world that number one, you can't see with the naked eye. Right. Number two, that maybe don't exist actually. So for example, the cliffs yeah. are... Composite.
1: Composite. Before iPhone start stitching, you can make now, you know, everybody does uh, panorama stitching. But that was 2005 I started it. it not many people were doing it. Yeah. And then also this is a vertical stitching. So, and then also after stitch, I uh, correct the perspective. So that gives you, it seems, though, my photograph was taken from the midair. Because of the manipulation of, I think, perspective will Mm -hmm. give this vertigo to you. feel like you're going to fall down into the ocean. or.
0: And then how about when you got into the caves?
1: Caves are totally different.
0: How does that work?
1: Because there's no point for me to stitch things you cannot see. It's different place, similar content. People die in these places, so content is similar, but place is different. And then I have to think about different ways to visualize it. And going into the dark place and take photograph, it's totally against photography because photography you need light. So it's more like going into the dark room,
0: chemical dark room, and Print, photograph. That analogy really comes forth in, for example, this one photograph of a cave that is so dark, and the only thing we see is a very small opening or aperture. Mm-hmm. And th- yeah. it makes me think of the cave as a camera, yeah. the the camera itself. Yeah. Did you often think about that analogy? I thought about yeah. yeah.
1: I, I, I thought about working in a huge cave walking around with lighting all the surfaces from different direction to create the light that cannot be, I think, constructed by putting the light on the fixed position.
0: Yeah, so you didn't just set up a light.
1: No, I moved around.
0: You had a sort of a strobe or a, a handheld... Flashlight. A flashlight.
1: Strong flashlight, yeah.
0: Okay. A strong flashlight, and then you would...
1: You open the shutter. It's very analog way of making photograph. It's a long time exposure, long exposure. So first I set my camera and bulb. So shutter speed is when I push the shutter opens and leave it there. So entire time shutter is wide open, and then I start painting with light and then walk around entire cave.
0: While the shutter is open. So you are I'm the sort of exposing the film <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and lighting yeah. the cave simultaneously.
1: But the thing is, yes, technically, yes. Mm. But act of doing that is for me to see. And then I have a conversation with inside this place because I'm scared because so many people died, and then, you know, people tell me this is highly spiritual place. I mean, Gama functioned as sacred place as well as cemetery for the ancestors, and, you know, the shaman goes in and then, you know, they have the pilgrimage too. So it's a a sacred place. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh. Let's just take a short break. You're listening to Profiles. My name is Yael Cassander. Our guest today is the photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. Let's get everyone up to speed about your own biography. You showed me a really interesting image that you made when you were four years old in Japan reflecting on the American, American part of your, of your life. So could you describe what we're looking at?
1: Well, this is the, uh, the drawing, or crayon, done with, the, I think, crayon, but the portrait of American Indian
0: with a very elaborate headdress with headdress, feathers, yeah, feathers, and some other uh, regalia, yeah. And what did you write there? What do those words? That's write? my name,
1: Osamu. Oh, okay. Right, and then my mother wrote, because I think I said this is Indians, the head of the Indian,
0: chief, chief. What was your acquaintance as a four-year-old with American Indians? <laughs> How did you know about? American Indians in the 1960s in uh, well, Japan
1: I, I think because part of it is I was born in New York and I went back to Japan when I was seven months old. but my brother was five years old already, so this is the another photograph my uncle took the moment I came back from New York, my mother and all the people greeting is those are our family mm-hmm. members never seen us before yet, so they all came to see us at the airport. And my brother never seen this many probably Japanese people, so he's kind of, kind of stunned. Right?
0: Because he also had been born in the states. Right, right. Your and father it, had been a, uh, what was his line of work?
1: He was a businessman, Japanese businessman. So this is the moment that came back. So with coming back, my brother had all the toys from the United States, of course, GI Joes, <laughs> you know those plastic Indian toys. Yeah. we still have that, right? Yeah. We had all the different toys that our neighbor, Japanese Tokyo neighbors, kids, they used to come to our house and play with all that stuff that we didn't have at that time in Japan. Now, culture changed, and the American kids are playing with Pokemon and manga and all that recently. But at that time, we perceived as, I think, for the neighbor, neighbor we were kind of strange family.
0: Strange, but maybe cool also because you had that cool, connection. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was um, it was only ten years after that drawing that you returned to the U.S. when you were fourteen, right? Yeah, 14, and 15. and so you went just with your dad at first. Right. So, what was that like?
1: Uh, that was again culture shock one more time, <laughs> because my brother kind of remembered. Five years old went to Disneyland before I came back to Japan. He remembers. I don't remember anything because I was just a, I was on the stroller in mm-hmm. uh, Disneyland. So mm-hmm. I felt that I need to go to the place that I was I was born, and I had uh, American passport too. You know, I was a baby, but so part of it is I really wanted to see again. I wanted to see
0: because you. You did somehow feel like that was part of your right. identity, your history, your...
1: But there's no memory, except photograph. And it's, oh, see, you were there.
0: Uh, right. So it sounds like photographs, uh, for you at that point, played a role that was almost like a surrogate memory, really. Kind of. And you, you use yeah. those family photographs and home movies in your work in right. a composite way. So can we describe this one?
1: Well, this is a photograph that I think uh, my Nakagawa family album, uh, I, I inherited, I don't know how many, like five or six old family album, from my father before he died, and I didn't know what to do with it. And then I don't have any memory, of course, and I, don't, I never met these people. But somehow you're connected. I was fascinated that the image you see and the people you see in the photograph from different time, and you don't know them, who they are, but somehow you are connected to these mm-hmm. people. So,
0: and so how did you manipulate the old photograph?
1: Oh, this, this one I integrated, the 8mm film that my father took. Actually, this one is uh, Disneyland. So this one, my father, my mother, I'm on a stroller, and my brother's here too with Mickey Mouse. So I'm trying to traverse time from the past and present because I'm making this representing this one more time through me of different generation of time.
0: Right, and so in the center the central image is one of maybe your grandparents generation.
1: I think he's going to the war.
0: I see. And we have several ladies in traditional kimono. Right. And then sort of scattered around are these images of your family at Disneyland in, Disney. in kind of a pastel color. Uh-huh. Disney is sort of pastel. Yeah. <laughs> so this comes from your series, is it called Ma? Ma. Ma, which means? In between.
1: In between. Tem- temporal as well as spatial in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in between this. So. Well, Let's
0: just take a short break. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander. Our guest today is the photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander, and our guest on the program today is photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. James, it's great to have you in the studio today. Thank you. We were talking about your family photographs, uh, the In Between series, Mm -hmm. and the multiple generations of your family that you've managed to juxtapose photographically in these composite pictures. That leads me to wonder about your actual family and the role that photography played within your personal family history. I understand it goes back several generations as well. Well,
1: my mother's side is kind of all creative people, I think. Uh, I never met my grandfather, but he was a... Western furniture designer, woodworker. So they designed European uh, Western furniture before World War II. But then I heard from my mother, he got interested in photography. So he made a room, taking photograph and processing. And then he started to import chemicals, photochemicals, and then started doing a little bit of business. And then, I don't know what happened between my grandfather's brothers, but he decided to move to downtown Asakusa, downtown, which is really downtown Tokyo, and with a whole family. They all moved to downtown Tokyo, and he started a camera store. And that was before World War II. Even though after my grandfather died, my grandmother and my uncle kept the camera store. So they processed film. Back in those days, Black and white film, so they have dark room too, so they print and dry it and then cut it, trim it, and that was, you know, the store.
0: Was this at a time when everyone had a camera?
1: Did this is already thirty five millimeter camera in Japan, mm-hmm. you know, after World War II. My memory comes in the start from sixties, so I remember everybody had a
0: camera. Mm-hmm. So you would go into that camera shop as a kid.
1: To go see my grandmother, to yeah. To see yeah. your grandmother.
0: Yeah. And could it have been any other place or were you intrigued by what they were doing in there?
1: It's strange because my father is a businessman. So you don't get to see the work. He just go every morning, leave, and then he doesn't bring back the work, right?
0: Right. It's rather abstract. Right, right. Mm-hmm.
1: But going to my, see my grandmother, is like, okay, there, customer comes and, you know, drop off the film mm. or, you know, pick up the prints or, and then prints comes out from the
0: dryer. and mm. So you got to look at the pictures?
1: A little bit, but my, grand, my grandmother would say, don't, don't look too much or whatever. <laughs> so. But it was interesting.
0: Yeah. And then, and then uh, what happened eventually to that camera shop? Your well, uncle took it over? Or? Well, my
1: uncle took it over, but uh-huh. then, then eventually, I mean, this is way after I moved to United States, uh-huh. but they closed it finally. Uh-huh. And then there's another uncle, the youngest uncle, became one of the leading photographer in the 60s, and he was the first Japanese photographer to have a solo exhibition at the Eastman House.
0: So you uh, eventually studied photography at, uh, in Houston and got Houston. your MFA. Do you attribute your interest in photography to those early days in the camera shop? Or how did that happen? Did you, were you exploring other art forms I as well?
1: I didn't know taking photographs was, was art because people bring the film and then it's a family memory. So I didn't know it was art. And my uncle started doing I don't remember when he had an exhibition at the Nikon salon in 60s because I, I didn't get to go. I was too young. I yeah. was like five years old or mm-hmm. four years. So I didn't get to see it.
0: Please tell me his name again.
1: Takayuki Ogawa. But uh, he started doing TV commercials. He has extensive photographs of Orson Wells, And uh, Yul Brynner, Muhammad Ali. Wow. Because Japanese... That that was the beginning of creative Japanese TV commercials. Mm. And he was right in it. He was doing fine arts photography, too. But, you know, he became known more in commercial portrait and also cinema photography.
0: So he developed a big name for himself. Mm -hmm. Is that when you started to understand that photography wasn't just the family business or a way of recording family memories? It It was cool.
1: I mean, he was hippie. And uh, so he was
0: your role model, a little bit, in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, did you start exploring photography as an art form when you were in high school in Houston, or
1: not in high school? High school, I was drawing. Photography came later for me. I loved drawing, so I did drawings. My mother was a painter; Mm -hmm. she did still lifes and nude, and all you know. Maybe Sunday painter, but a little bit more than that, you know? So I was painting from when I was little, as you can see. (laughs) So I was encouraged to draw. So drawing, and when I went to high school, that was, I think, triggered. I took art class. I couldn't speak English. And then I'm an athlete, so sports, I was fine. But when I took art class, my teacher encouraged me. I learned drawing was the quickest way to communicate. I couldn't speak English, but Mm -hmm. if I draw, it was immediate communication. I think that was my first realization that visual communication works. I was doing sculpture. I was doing drawings and a little bit of paintings. And then I start taking Mm photographs. The mechanic of it, shutter speed, I didn't have to think about it because I knew how to do it, but I didn't know in theory. F stop, if you open, it's gonna be out of focus. I kind of knew, but not in technical way. It just came intuitive for me. If I do the slow shutter, it's gonna get it's gonna get blur. Mm-hmm. That will create some kind of mood. Those kind of stuff that I think I intuitively inherited and kind of knew.
0: Almost like a language that you had from birth
1: no 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 that's a little bit too romantic <laughs> however I think I'm exposed to looking at my uncle's stuff because I've seen that Sapporo Olympic poster that my uncle did this blue ice and took photograph from above this skater doing a circle and wearing a purple dress against this blue ice with all the gestural mark on it mm. and it's Totally blur-turning, mm-hmm. but it's with 1970 Olympic logo with this this. Design, it was stunning, stunning. So those kind of stuff that I, mm-hmm. I think I was exposed to it. So from the beginning, I was experimenting with what can you do with camera, yeah. not in uh, just a recording right. way.
0: Right. And then you also had the example of your uncle as a fine arts photographer so you knew that was a possibility out possibility, there. Possibility, yeah. But you, when you left college, was it, you, you did try to embark but, on work as a commercial and editorial photographer?
1: Well, I did assistant. But I'm going to go with what my uncle. He never encouraged me to become a photographer. <laughs> he said, only one photographer is enough in the family. <laughs> uh, why don't you do more You know, painting was drawings or sculpture or something else? But then, at the same time, he was I think he was he was happy that I was interested in photography, mm-hmm. but he knows how hard it is, so he was concerned too, and my father was getting on his case that it's your fault <laughs> that you know I'm interested in photography, so
0: you didn't want to be a businessman like Dad
1: mm, no, it was kind of sad that when some stuff I heard from his colleague about both of the sons didn't become businessmen, so... But when I had a show, I got second place in Tokyo... What was it? Tokyo International Biennial back in 95 or '6? He, he came, and he, he congratulated me, and he was, you know, he, he was so happy. And even my, my uncle was happy, too, but he, I got invited back to Tokyo... And uh, to show my drive-in theater work in major way, so that that was that was kind of payback. Because my father, without his support, there's no way I, that was my grant to go to graduate school.
0: Why don't we talk about that series, the drive-in and billboard series, even if they were taken in an actual spot? Many times the pictures. Take us more to an imaginative space mm-hmm. or an emotional space.
1: I think the, how this driving theater work came was well, I was in the graduate school, University of Houston, mm-hmm. under Ed Hill and Suzanne Bloom, the husband and wife collaborating artists, called Manuel, and it was height of postmodernism too. So I was constantly reminded by everybody that. Work has to be critical, go beyond formal, has to have meaning or reason behind formalism.
0: How did that result in these images, which um, show kind of classic American landscapes with huge screens on the horizon that are yeah, either... Drive, driving theater are, and billboards. Billboards or driving theaters. Number one, are they, in fact, observed scenes or... Are they manipulated? It's
1: manipulated. I was fortunate to go to University of Houston and learn under N. Hill and Suzanne Bloom because they were exploring this uh, digital image making.
0: Digital image making was new at that time.
1: 1992,
0: Photoshop won. Well, oh, yeah. And what about digital cameras? No. No, not yet. Not yet. That wasn't until maybe 97 mm, or 8? Something, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So. so
1: so this is all done with a film camera. And uh, I struggled because there is nobody to look at. No one was making digital photograph yet. So I, can, I cannot go to library and look at digital artists' work. Mm-hmm. And it was like we're trying to figure it out. And uh, I struggled you know, you take photograph. You have all the photographs or contact sheet or negatives. Mm-hmm. So you tend to first go to your greatest hit. So I have this great photograph. I have another great photograph. Let's manipulate to blend it together in something more incredible. Come, That's not the case. I mean, I made it really bad work.
0: Help me understand. I mean, I spoke with Jerry Yulsman when he came uh, here a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And... All of his work, of course, was pre-digital and was done in the dark room with negatives. Yeah. How did you make these images? So,
1: so so, first, I take photograph, Yeah. process negative, just like Jerry, mm-hmm. and then I make prints, just like Jerry, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But I scan those prints because we didn't have negative scanner yet. Only way was to use the flatbed scanner. So you make prints to get best informa- information you know, using the flatbed scanner. Then digitize it and then work on the Photoshop. But Photoshop wasn't oh. that fast. Well, good example is computer. I was using Apple two CI, 25 megahertz computer. We are using, I don't know how many quad giga, 1.5. So it it was slow.
0: So you would make a change and then it would render for half an hour or something.
1: I do something, walk out and have coffee, come back and still turning.
0: Okay, so that helps me understand a little bit. You used a scanner, made a digital image using the scanner and then used Photoshop to manipulate that digital image.
1: In terms of how to, with technology now, after twenty whatever years mm-hmm. it's easier to do. But I think this work survived because digital technology is secondary. It's about content. It's not so much rely on the technology sake. It's it's about demystifying the American dream.
0: Yeah, these pictures these really explore the American landscape and this kind of mid century American aesthetic. They look a little bit like they're all taken on the set of a James Dean movie or something. Mm-hmm. You've got the wide open road, the horizon, the stormy sky, and then these massive screens. And tell me about what's on the movie screens or the billboards.
1: These images were my exploration of all things I noticed being living in the United States. So I started to focus on that, and then I saw the driving theater images. And I go, That's a canvas. I can put something in them. I can project something in there. Mm-hmm. That once heyday of United States culture, you know, Hollywood, and it's deteriorating. The image I made is in the nineties, the eighties. U.S. wasn't in a good shape. I live in Houston. I hear gunshot all the time. Helicopter goes around and search. I mean, so I started to question. Mm -hmm. My American dream, as I learned from Disneyland, Mm -hmm. is question.
0: And playing with the uh, American Indian dolls and Uh, things like that as a child. Mm -hmm. So I
1: think that that came back with the driving theater Uh pieces.
0: Did you actually, were you observing... uh, Drive-ins in the landscape for the first time—is that what you're saying? When you were out in Texas, right? You were so you noticed this strange feature of the landscape, right? Yeah,
1: it's okay. like a monument or yeah. tomb, or <laughs> it's kind of similar feeling when you find this. You know, you first time you when I went to Palenque or somewhere that in in Mexico, all of a sudden you see this old pyramid, civilization kind of. Lost, And then, you know, all of a sudden you go through the jungle and then you're fine.
0: Especially because so many of those drive-ins are abandoned and have vines growing up around them and nature is reclaiming them. (laughs) Reclaiming yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh Let's just take a short break. You're listening to Profiles. My name is Yael Kassander. Our guest today is the photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. Let's let's talk about the most recent series that you're doing.
1: I'm doing uh, several different stuff. Also, extending because I've been making so many different work. Instead of just finish and move on, especially my family, personal work, it just keeps going. And recently, um, uh, the one series of photographs I made since I moved here. It's called Kai series. My, at that time, my, my daughter was born, and my father passed away, and I made a series called Kai series with black and white and straight photographs.
0: Kai photograph. means what?
1: Cycle of life. And then, recently my mother died. We placed her in an assistant care place in Tokyo, but I had a Guggenheim so I could you know I had a chance to go back to Japan a lot in Okinawa and had an exhibition and all that so I could help her to situate herself into this new change. And I started taking photographs of her. And then also I started taking photographs of her house. She wouldn't let me do touch anything when I go back to Japan, you know, even I stay. After my father's died, you know so she moved into this Place. So I could take photograph in the
0: house too. Mm.
1: And the remains of my father revisit. Plus I took photograph of my mother's change.
0: Her change?
1: Well physically getting yeah. weaker and then also you know, mentally and dementia a little bit. You know, it's getting old.
0: Many people would have a hard time documenting that process as a photographer. Did you have any emotional challenges there with that or any ethical challenges? Wondering, this is kind of sacred. I should let her age unobserved. <laughs>
1: I think it's, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But uh, her father was an artist. My mother's youngest brother was a photographer. And then I finally became photographer. So I talked to her. My mother saw the Kai series in Houston when I had an exhibition. Mm-hmm. She loved it, you know. And then those, it,
0: those images of your father and but your then she
1: daughter. never let me take a photograph of her until when she moved into this place. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, "Can we take a photograph together?" And it became really good conversation collaboration Mm -hmm. with my mother because my mother and I my brother would say we are so much like so we didn't get along (laughs) till start making images together wow
0: could you describe these images for those who are listening
1: well this is a a photograph of my mother with a walker standing Mm -hmm. on the hallway Mm -hmm. of the uh, assistant care place And uh, this is kind of brutal. She fell down, and this is visually kind of hard image, but uh, this incident made her really want to stay in that place.
0: Oh, some of these photographs are difficult to look at almost. The picture of your mother with her mouth sort of open, lying on her pillow. Yeah. You know, no one wants to see their mom look like that. Yeah. It just makes me wonder, and would she want to be seen that way?
1: That was like a last breath. I was talking to her while I was taking her.
0: That that was the last breath of her life?
1: Close to, like like 10, 20 minutes. But this experience was like so different from other deaths that I encountered because this is the first time witnessing somebody I know die without anything hooked up. She was breathing and stopped. I mean, I, it's, it's a miracle that I, can, I made it back. I had one day with her. So she acknowledged that I came back. Yeah. My brother was there. So it's a miracle we all made it back.
0: So it brings up this idea of what is private and what is public. And it seems as though your pictures of family are intensely private. Mm-hmm. Um, and your pictures of of people in general tend to be private, very personal pictures. And a lot of your other pictures have no people. They're non-figurative whatsoever. Do you think of this work, for example, this series of your mom or the Kai series, how do you think about these two major threads in your oeuvre?
1: I think when you're getting older... It started to—I learned how to weave those together. Even issue-oriented, I trying to get to the place that I, I personalize it. To do that, you have to do research sometimes. You need to get to know the people there. Even mm-hmm. Okinawan issue issues mm-hmm. in Okinawan. Mm-hmm. You have to spend the time there and get to know the people, mm-hmm. and you see how they see— things, how they feel so I get pissed off too because it's my matter too you know, I'm outsider so yes, they can say well you always go back, I mean yes I have to live here so yeah. go back, however I just learned how to situate myself to make it my matter than journalism going in and bam bam bam, shoot 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 and leave I mean I can't do that you know, well, okay next I can't do it. So has to have some kind of connection. If I don't know how to visualize the emotion, how can I move other people to look at my work? Whether it's social, political, cultural content, if it's all intellectually visualized images, I cannot move people or transcend my work beyond just the visual signifier or formal lines or you've got to do something to internalize it and then vomit visually.
0: I see that. So even though in the darkest cave, yeah. some of these are, are so abstract really. I mean, we're seeing form. Mm-hmm. But these images of the caves for example, or of the cliffs are informed by personal stories. Yeah. And so maybe when you talked about being able to see faces even within the cliffs, they are the faces of all of those personal stories that that those cliffs actually do represent. Right. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Yael Cassander. Our guest today is the photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. Thanks for listening.
1: Yeah, so I'm doing several different work at the same time right now. The most recent one, is I'm creating more abstract work but I think visually highly emotional too and at the same time it's very political even though it's abstract
0: describe these are enormous images enormous dark dark images
1: the reason why I mean I start my making these images is that when I was working in the cave I'm revealing what's there by walking around and paint it with flashlight to visualize the things you cannot see. What you see with my work in the cave is nothing like what's there because I only can see section of caves when I'm walking around and painting with lights. So because of the long exposure, I reveal entire scene within the frame. Mm-hmm. So I don't get to see the final results until I work on the Photoshop.
0: So you're showing us something that no one could ever see.
1: Right. So but then what's my experience while I'm making these images mm-hmm. in the dark? So that was my concern and then I start making these. Uh, I took photograph of surface of cliff or rocks that it looked like contained many faces. And then I printed on a, a rice paper and applied sumi ink and rust uh, to these uh, prints. So you can see Actually, backside is beautiful too. Oh, wow. But...
0: And then you folded them.
1: The reason why I brought the actual print... Yeah. Because you cannot you ca- see so dark, that It's so dark, it's hard to see
0: on the screen. Oh. So
1: it's very physical.
0: Yeah.
1: And then also, another thing, I was working on the hyperreal photographs with very slick photographic surface, but my... Banta image and the cave images when I did the exhibition people start touching because it's so hyper real that it had the illusion of three dimensionality people go side and look at it and all that so I said wait a minute this is there's no physicalness to these images photograph is object it's paper I'm just lying everybody that it looks like three dimensional so I decided how can I introduce the physicality? I just want to let people know this is paper. so the the part of the folding comes in is to have this grid, but then you can go in and out of these surface, and some of them looks like faces, but and sumi ink, and these are rust
0: and what you've done here is gone in the entirely other direction where it's more this abstract. isn't illusionistic really at all it's very abstract right. and and then, when i make
1: work there's a s- other things that i uh i encounter richard serres drawing uh exhibition i saw in houston at the Manil collection it's just stunned me because it's all black it's huge black paper looking drawing with uh, with uh, texture on it so I spent a lot of time, and then I just wanted to make something that viewer will be immersed in darkness, like I felt in the dark. Uh, is it possible? So last summer, I had a chance to show my work in Tokyo University of Arts, and they gave me an entire wall or room to transform to do this. So I made it 7 foot by 12 feet. Huge Photograph, looking, dark, drawing-looking
0: piece. In terms of this recent evolution, I can see your work going in the direction of either film or installation art, like Robert Irwin. It sounds to me like you want to make something all-encompassing.
1: Kind of, more experiential. People can experience it. So, yeah. And then meditative. People can meditate and have a conversation with what they see. And then also, this work I like the aspect that what you made is keep changing. Photographs, it's not going to change. What you see is what you get. Like what you said, it's analytical, literal, those will not change. Image in that those signify will not change once you depict. This different lighting changes your mood to going so it's more like a Rothko painting or but that is interesting to me. The photograph can change. Depends on the viewer. Depends on the mood.
0: Well we're we're definitely uh A long way from those images of the billboards, you've really evolved and are really thinking about photography in a very, very broad way.
1: Broad, yeah. Yeah. And then it's time that we are in with the photography that it's broad. Uh, My dear friend, Takashi Arai in Tokyo, he is doing a contemporary daguerreotype, but trying to visualize the Radiation, some somehow,
0: and you yourself have been doing cyanotypes right. and photograms, which are also a fairly old technique yeah. that you're revisiting.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So, so this is another idea that I had about physicality. Uh, I was in the cave. You touch all the rocks, all that. But how can I transform that physicality into? to visualize that. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing the rubbing of surface of the rock and it didn't work. But then I start doing the frottage rubbing on World, World Memorial because it's what's on the World Memorial in Peace Park from all the different pre- prefecture from Japan have this incredible massive, heroic monuments for soldiers who died in Okinawa. So I started to question, trying to de- deconstruct the military agenda and glorification of military. And uh, I started doing the rubbing, pick up certain words, rain, 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 rain. Uh, comfort, 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 comfort. Uh, sad sorrow it's all a Japanese Chinese character but and I and, and, uh, abstracted and then, then made film and went to Okinawa and exposed those letters and then overlap with another letter mm-hmm. and uh, this is a salt this is- print mm-hmm. it's the oldest process photography
0: just a direct method where things are exposed in the sun right? Uh,
1: and the use of salt so I just use the ocean <laughs> salt water to coat it and then silver nitrate and expose it to Okinawan sun and made these prints so these are the combination each mm-hmm. one of them is like 20 by 30 so it's a huge installation but mm-hmm. it, it becomes like map and mm-hmm. also island and ocean because it's a combination mm-hmm. of salt print and cyanotype prints
0: and this is a wall size. Yeah, yeah. huge.
1: Yeah.
0: Again, the work has just become so abstract, and it's getting <laughs> it's abstract. Such a it. such a far cry from your original photographic roots.
1: Yeah. So it's more like what, as you said, installation. Work. Instead of just one image, tells the message. I think it's I want people to experience. Yeah. So I'm going back to Okinawa in July. Mm-hmm. To do more political stuff, I want to do more of the fences, mm-hmm. military fence, cyanotype directly to create the installation with this text one too yeah. and see what happens.
0: Well, good luck with that project. The work is continues to be fascinating and grow in directions. Uh, that no one could have anticipated. (laughs) (laughs) I can't either. (laughs) Our guest on Profiles has been photographer Osamu James Nakagawa. I'm Yael Cassander. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Copies of this, or other programs, can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer, and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.